0: 16th, 2023. We're continuing our set of sermons today on the final countdown and what that looks like to you and what it looks like to me, what it looks like to those who are saved and what it looks like to those who aren't. We would be terribly remiss in the teaching of the final countdown without considering the state of today's church. Notice I didn't say churches. Originally, God made only one church. It was man that broke away and continued to fragment the church union until we became like so many leaves blown in a fall wind. When was the first split? From my research, it appears that on July the 16th, 1054 CE, or AD, which I prefer, there was an event called the Great Schism. On that date, the patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Sorelius, was excommunicated, starting the Great Schism that created the two largest denominations in Christianity, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox faiths. The three causes of this great schism were a power struggle between bishops because the Roman Empire was enormous, differences and disunity in the church, jurisdiction of the bishops. In short, the church split over a power struggle. Do you see these events in your church? Do you know churches that have split over simple things? And not just differences in theology, but simple things. Like where things go in the, in the vestibule. Or who does what? Simple things. Some churches split for larger reasons. But remember, God made one church Again, it was man that destroyed the concept of unity in the church. Now, have you ever walked into a new church? First time that you've been overcome with joy at the prospect of feeling the Holy Spirit move in its midst, and you walk out feeling cheated and disappointed with nothing? No, I I don't mean that the people are not going through the action of worship. They are. But are they really worshiping? Or are they too busy acting so pious trying to see who's wearing what clothes, who has on the most finery, or perhaps who's driving the new car. I attended a church like that one time, many, many years ago. Some churches are like a good old-fashioned family reunion. The gossip is worse if you're not present. Gossip can kill a church. What you feel in these churches is death. Is the death of a church that once worshipped the one true and living God. It was a church where the Holy Spirit once felt at home, but may believe it no longer belongs there. As we lean more into the book of Revelation and the coming final countdown, I want us to compare the churches of that century with the churches of today. Let's read from God's Word. I still like the NIV version and the ESV version because they're a little easier to understand. Today I'll read from the NIV version. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Imagine that you're crawling scorched near death across a hot, burning desert. You're dying of thirst. You're close to dying. But ahead you see a sign that reads, Cool, Clear, Clear. Life-giving water, only five miles ahead. This sign gives you renewed energy, new hope. And you continue your tormenting crawl across the parched sand. As you arrive at the promised place, you see a magnificent building, radiant in its beauty, and the sign outside invites you in, even beckoning to you with the promise of life-giving water. So you crawl through the entrance, into a glorious building, and there before you is the promised well, with the bucket ready to be let down and filled with water to quench your thirst and to pour life back into your body. With the last bit of your strength, you lower the bucket into the well, expecting a splash as the bucket hits the water, but it never comes. The only sound is the dull thud of the bucket hitting the bottom. You think that perhaps you're just delirious, so you reel in the bucket only to find it full of dust. Dust that cannot quench your thirst, but dust that only deepens the thirst and destroys all hope. Does this sound far-fetched? This is the experience of many people who go to God's house, expecting to be filled and fed with the water and bread of life, only to find all the trappings and the rituals, but no help or hope for all those who've made their way there. Such was the condition of the church that we're considering today. The church in Sardis had taken on the character of the city in which she resided. Let's look at a little background on the city. That will help us understand the condition of the church. Sardis was the capital city of Lydia. It was founded about 1200 BC. The original city sat on the top of a 1500 foot high plateau. There was only one narrow road leading into the city. The other sides of the plateau were just steep cliffs. This made the city very safe and nearly impenetrable by invading armies. Sardis was also the home of Aesop, whose fables we all heard as children. Gold and silver corns were probably first minted here. The city of Sardis was famous. At one time, Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the world. It reached its zenith under King Croesus. King Croesus and Sardis were famed around the world for their wealth. In that part of the world, it's still common to hear the phrase, as wealthy as Croesus. While Sardis reached its zenith under Croesus, it also fell under his reign. He and the people of the city became complacent in their wealth, their power, and their city's apparent invincibility. When that region where Sardis was located came under attack by Cyrus the Persian, King Croesus and his people retreated to their city, they believed that they were safe. One night, one of the Persian soldiers saw a Sardinian soldier drop his helmet over the wall of the city. He watched as that soldier followed a hidden path down the side of the mountain to retrieve his helmet. When nightfall came, Cyrus and his troops followed the hidden path up the side of the mountain, entered the city while the guards slept, and conquered Sardis. Sardis regained some of its former wealth under the reign of Alexander the Great, but was invaded and defeated by Anticholus the Great, who also entered the city at night while the guards slept. When the Romans came, Sardis was still a wealthy, powerful city, but it was just a shell of its former self. By John's day, Sardis was just a shell of what it had been. The city had grown lazy, degenerate, Immoral and complacent, Sardis was dying through apathy and indifference. Does that sound like any country that you know today? The city was proud of its past, it was proud of its reputation, but its reputation was all it had left. For all intents and purposes, the city of Sardis was dead even while it lived. You know, to me, this draws a parallel to the United States. Our reputation is all that we have left. We're no longer the shining beacon to the rest of the world. Young Chinese used to look at us as an example of a high moral democracy. It's my understanding that now they see little difference between their government and ours. Apparently, the church in Sardis had adopted the atmosphere of the city. The church had become a thermometer that registered the temperature of the city instead of the thermostat that changed the temperature of the city. It is to this church that had become lazy, apathetic, and complacent that the Lord Jesus comes. Note that Jesus has no words of commendation for them, but he does have some words of counsel. I would like for us to look at our Lord's words to this dying church. There's a word of warning for us and these voices as well. Let me remind you that these letters can be viewed three ways. Practically, these letters were written to real churches with real issues, prophetically, These letters picture the church at various stages of church history. This particular church pictures the period between 1500 and the rapture. It pictures the Protestant Reformation. It pictures dead churches. It pictures the state of many churches in our world. Today, personally, these letters have something to say to every church and every believer who comes under the sound of their message. I want to consider the words of Jesus to this church today. He has something to say to them. He has had something to say to us as well. Let's listen in as Jesus, the great and divine physician, performs an autopsy of a dead church. So let's look at the great physician's pronouncement. He comes proclaiming his deity Jesus comes to this church as one who has the seven spirits of God and as one who's holding the seven stars. The seven spirits of God refer to the Holy Spirit in his complete ministry. The seven, This is a reminder to the churches that we are to operate not under the power of human skill, leadership, and organization but under the awesome power of the Holy Spirit. When the church walks in the power of the flesh, we will surely fail. But when we walk in the power of the spirit, there will be success, there will be glory, and there will be power and life instead of deadness and ineffectiveness. When the human spirit is in control of the human body, amazing things can be accomplished. For instance, a pianist can sit down at a keyboard, perform thousands of delicate and precise movements that produce beautiful music. However, let that same pianist suffer some injury that leaves the arms paralyzed and the mind no longer in control of those arms, hands, and fingers. Then the human spirit cannot will the hands to make the music. So too, when the Spirit of God is in control of the members of the church, great things can be accomplished. However, when he is not, paralysis is the result and nothing can be accomplished for God. The seven stars are the pastors of the churches, Revelation 1.20. They are the messengers who bring the people the word of God. Jesus appears as one who has everything the church needs to succeed. His spirit has all the power the churches need. His word has all the direction his churches need. Jesus seems to be saying, if you will submit to me, you will find in me all you need to accomplish my mission in this world. There's a message for the modern church here today, too. Men are trying every method they can think of to reach sinners and to do the work of the church. But all the power we need is found in the fullness of the Holy Ghost and in the Word of God. What we need is not a new method, but a new desire to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit and do everything according to the teachings of the Word of God. He comes proclaiming his discernment. Jesus tells them, I know your works. He comes as one who sees all and knows all. He does not commend their works, and he does not condemn their works. He merely tells them that he knows everything that they're doing. He knows everything that we're doing too. He sees it all, along with the motives that drive us to do what we do. Take a look at Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, he sees us as a whole. He also sees the individual as well. He knows your heart. He knows everything you do, and he knows why you do it. That's a very sobering thought. And so is a great physician. He comes proclaiming his diagnosis. Apparently, their works gave them the appearance of life. Jesus tells them that they have that reputation. They were a busy working church with a great reputation among men. From all outward appearances, this church was everything a church ought to be. They believed the right things and they were busy to do good all over the community. Everyone who saw them looked at them and said, that church is on fire. I'm sure that when people moved to Sardis from other towns, their pastor suggested that they visit this church. It had all the appearances of life. But you know, things were not as they seemed. The great physician placed his finger on the pulse of this church and pronounced them dead. No matter what others thought, Jesus knew the truth. Regardless of what others may have thought about this church, Jesus knew the truth. He tells them, Even though everyone thinks they're alive, they are in fact dead. The word means just what it says. Like a dead man, the church at Sardis was destitute of force or power. They were ineffective and inoperative. They were dead. There was activity, but it was not spiritual in nature. There was busyness, but they were bringing nothing eternal to pass. They were preaching, but but lives were not being changed and sinners were not being saved. They were busy, but they were operating in the energy of the flesh and not the energy of the Spirit of God. Everyone looked at them and spoke of their life. You now, Jesus is the one who knew better than anyone. He looked at them and pronounced them dead. Notice that looks are deceiving. You know, flowers on a table can have all the appearance of life. They're beautiful. They're filled with color and fragrance, but they're dead. They've been severed from the roots that gave them life. It won't take many days until their colors fade or their, their blooms wilt, their leaves turn brown, and they can be taken and thrown away. They look alive, but they're dead. The same can be said about animals on display in a museum. They look very lifelike. They're placed in natural habitats, but they're dead. Our world is filled with similar fakes, Things like silk flowers, wax fruits, wax fruit, and etc. They all look alive, but they're dead. Now take a look at the polar star. Astronomers tell us that it takes 33 years for the light from that star, the polar star, to reach the Earth. For all we know, the polar star might have burned out 20 years ago, and we would not know it for another 13 years. It looks like it's still there, but it may not be. It could be a dead star. I want you to see that many churches are in the same shape today. They all have the appearance of life, but the great physician who has his finger on their pulse knows they are dead. People, his finger is on the pulse of every church today. Does he feel a pulse in your church? Is it strong and steady? Or is it weak and failing? What does he know about our church that we may not know? So let me give you some signs of a church that's dying. A dying church rests on its past accomplishments and is satisfied with its present state. A dying church rests on its past accomplishments and is satisfied with its present state. I attended a church like that not too long ago. They didn't want to grow. They didn't want to bring more people in for Jesus. They were satisfied with the status quo. A dying church is more concerned about their rituals and their formalities than what they are about spiritually. A dying church is more concerned about social change than they are about seeing people changed by the power of God. A dying church is more concerned with material growth than it is with spiritual growth. A dying church is more concerned with pleasing men than it is with pleasing God. A dying church clings more tightly to its creeds and confessions than it does to the Word of God. A dying church is one that loses its conviction that the Bible is the holy Word of God. So I've given you some signs of a dying church. Here are some signs of life in a church. Growth. All living things are characterized by growth. As long as you and I live in the bodies, we are maturing, we are changing, and we are growing. When the growth stops, it means we're dead. The church is no exception. When people think of growth in the church, they immediately think of numerical growth. I think that's part of it. But the primary way a church demonstrates life is through spiritual growth. A church that is alive will continue to develop spiritually. When a church ceases to grow spiritually, it is degenerating and dying. Harmony. When a physical body develops problems, it is because there is disharmony in the body. Cancer is a good example of this. Some of the cells become infected by the cancer. And they attack other cells in the body. If this is left unchecked, the results will be disintegration and death for that body. The same is true in the church. When a church is alive and well, there will be unity and harmony in the fellowship. And when there isn't, the body is diseased and is headed for trouble unless the infected parts come back into harmony. When a church becomes fractured, it is headed for disaster and death. Emotion. Another mark of life is the, in the physical realm is emotion. Because I am alive, I can laugh, I can cry, I can feel pain, I feel joy, I have emotions, and they demonstrate the fact that I am alive. But when the physical body dies, one of the clearest indications is the total lack of emotion. The diseased person does not show one sign of emotion. They can't because they're dead. Again, this same thing is true in the church. A living church is an emotional church. There will be times when we laugh together, weep together, shout together, sing together, hurt together, and pray together. In other words, where there is life, there is emotion. And then there's motion itself. Another sign of life is motion. Physical bodies are bodies in motion one sure sign of death is the absence of motion so it is within the church when there is life in a church there will be motion the church will be active in the world doing the work of the Lord so how do we measure up how does your church measure up does it exhibit signs of life or signs of death I do not think we're dead. I think we could all show more signs of life. So let's look at the great physician's pronouncement, his great prescription. So the church in Sardis is in sad shape, but not all is lost. It appears there's still hope for them to make some changes and get back to where they need to be. The same is true of you and your church. They are commanded to watch, first of all. They're told to be watchful. Literally, this means that they are to chase sleep. This church is a church with a glorious past. They have allowed their past success to lull them into a state of complacency and spiritual slumber. Jesus calls for them to chase away sleep. His command is for them to wake up and realize that the victories of yesterday are not sufficient for this day. This is true of every church in the United States of America and every church in the world. The victories of yesterday are not sufficient for this day. You see, the people in Sardis would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. Remember, Sardis was located on top of a mountain. It had only one entrance on the southern side, which was the only way you could get into the city in the old days. Therefore, all the Sardis had to do was put a detail at that one place to watch the city. But well, on two occasions in their history, they had been invaded by enemies because they had felt secure, believing the hill was impregnable and the guard went to sleep on the job. In 549 B.C., the soldiers of Cyrus scaled the parapet and then again in 218 B.C., Antichous the Great captured Sardis because the soldiers slipped over the walls while the sentries were careless. When we allow ourselves to sleep because of what we have enjoyed in the past, we're going to find ourselves conquered by the enemy. You can read that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. This happens far too often in churches. A church will struggle in its beginning, and the core group who founded the church will have to pray, work, witness, give, and yield to God to see that the church stays alive. Over time, more people come in. More money comes in. Buildings are built. Good services are employed. Yet in the midst of all these good things, something terrible happens. The church begins to lose the vision, the vision that made them so strong in their early years. They become content to sit back and enjoy the fruits of their labors. And while we ought to be thankful for what the Lord has done for us, we will never reach a place where we can let up. There's no time to look back to yesterday. Our vision ought to be for today and for tomorrow. Look around, we're aging. Who's going to take our place? Look around, we're full, but our vision's gone. Look around, we're satisfied with what we have. We've lost the fire that made us strong. We must fight the tendency to become still, satisfied, complacent, and apathetic. They're told to work. The Lord gives this church four activities that they're be busily engaged in. The revive, strengthen the things which remain. He tells them that not everything about them has died. There's still some things that have a spark of life in them. These things are to be revived before they die out. The phrase We're ready to, that they're ready to die literally means they're knocking on death's door. This is a call for them to get stirred up again for the things of God. It's a call to revival. And then, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. This means that their works are incomplete and do not reach heaven. There are some things in our midst that are good. There are some things that need reviving, that will make an eternal difference. They were singing, praying, preaching, and giving, but their works were not reaching heaven. They were accomplishing nothing of eternal value. They were dead people doing dead works. You know, it's possible to be busy in the things of God, yet to be doing nothing for God. Unless our works are complete, they will never reach heaven there will be no glory for God in the church. What churches like this need is to be stirred up by the Spirit of God into new life and activity for the glory of God. He tells them to remember. Remember therefore thou hast received and heard. These people are counseled to remember what the Lord brought them from and what he has done for them. They remember what it was like to walk in the power of God while the fire of his glory burned in and he used them for his glory. He tells them to have resolve, hold fast. This church is told to to hold on to the things that are still alive in their midst. They're told to resolve before the Lord that they will not allow those things to die as well. They're told to repent. In this verse, they're confronted concerning their sin. When the things of God are allowed to die, the only recourse the church has is repentance. The idea of repentance is a foreign one to many in our day and time. People seem to have the opinion that whatever they want to do is just fine and should be accepted by everyone. My brothers and sisters, God is not obliged to accept the things that you do. When there is sin in the life of an individual, there must be repentance before there can be restoration and revival. The same is true for a church. When a church has allowed itself to be lulled into a state of slumber, their only hope is to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means that we're to come to a place where we experience a change of mind about our sins that results in a change of direction. We turn from our sins and we turn toward God. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. How long has it been since we as individuals and we as a church have repented before the Lord for our laziness, our complacency, our apathy, our wickedness, and our deadness, etc. Then they're told to wait. I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. The church is told that if they do not do some serious work of changing themselves, the Lord himself will come into their midst and take away the things that remain alive, and the church will be totally and fully dead. Like a thief, he will come in and take the best, And they will not even know when he comes and when he goes. There are many churches in this condition today. When the call to repentance came from the Lord, they ignored it. He came to them with swift judgment. Now they function the same way they always have been. They have services, they have preaching, they have outreach ministries. They give to missions, but they're dead. They're ineffective. They're merely going through the motions. There's no life in their midst. Jesus has pulled the plug and pronounced them dead. Then there's the great physician's promises. His promise to the remnant. As bad as things were in Sardis, there were some who were saved and seeking to serve the Lord. They were given the Lord's promise that they will walk with the Lord in white. They've lived out the truth in this world and they can be confident that they will share his glory in that world. He made his promise to the repentant. Jesus tells them, tells the rest of them, that if they will repent and turn to Him, they will receive some precious promises. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out His name out of the book of life. It's made them secure in their relationship with Him. This verse is often used by people who try to say that Christians can lose their salvation. It's not a verse that serves as a threat of loss. It's a verse that serves as a promise of absolute security for all those who believe in Jesus. You know, there's a lot that can be said in these books. It appears that there is a book of life that contains all the names of all those who are living. It also appears that there's a Lamb's book of life that contains all the names of the redeemed. Revelation 21, verse 27. When a person is saved, their names are written In the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus said this was a real reason for rejoicing. My family rejoiced yesterday, yesterday morning at 10 a.m. My little seven-year-old granddaughter gave her life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and her name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Annie Letterman. Again, Jesus said this was the real reason for rejoicing. And he said, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Someday, Jesus will usher his redeemed ones into the presence of the hosts of heaven and say, This one is mine. He is not ashamed of me, and I am not ashamed of him. You see, the majority of the people of the church in Sardis were not just cold and out of God's will, they were lost, dead sinners in need of salvation. Jesus comes to them to give them an opportunity to be saved. It might sound prideful or arrogant, but I'm convinced that many churches are filled with lost sinners. They go through the motions, but they're merely practicing dead works. Churches in that shape do not need revival. They need a resurrection. There's always the danger that any church can die. As Dennis Lyle, another famous theologian, has so eloquently written, tragically, many churches are dead. Like the rotting carcass of Lazarus, these church bodies have the foul stench of death upon them. They have the appearance of life. They, in actuality, are dead. Their sanctuary is a morgue with a steeple. There are congregations of corpses, they have undertakers for ushers, embalmers for elders, and morticians for ministers. Their pastor graduated from the cemetery. The choir master is the local coroner. They sing embalmed in Bob and Gilead. And of rapture, they'll be the first churches taken where the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. You know, the great physician, our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, has his finger on the pulse of you in your church. He has his pulse on your church He has his finger on the pulse of every member. What does his touch reveal about us? I'd like to challenge each of you to examine your heart and the life of your church. If he's spoken to you about any need, I would be glad to pray for you. If this sermon has spoke to your heart, I ask you to send an email To ministry at christ lives.org or visit our website, http colon forward slash forward slash www.christ lives.org. Visit the contact page. You'll also find podcasts of our previous sermons there. Those of you that can sound my voice, if you have not accepted Christ today, I'd like to invite you to this is an altar call even though it's over the radio or it's over the internet if you have accepted Christ and perhaps you're going through the motions like many other people in these churches depending on your past works to to take you and carry you through maybe you need to re-examine your state with our Lord whatever your need is I pray that you will come Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, dear Lord. Thank you for all those in the sound of my voice. Father, thank you for the message that you place on my heart. And Father, thank you for those that are listening. If there are needs, Lord, I ask you to be with them. Bless them, Father. Help them through their trials. Father, if there are those that have not accepted you, Father, I ask that they do so today. they have not accepted your Son, Jesus, Lord, I ask that they do it today. And if if they have already accepted Christ, Lord, but there's other needs in their life and not fulfilling the full potential of what you have given to them. And Father, I ask that they will turn their life back over to you, Father, and that you will again redeem them. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time this morning. Again, another sermon on the final countdown many more to follow. God bless you and keep you. Thank you.